Before the episode starts, I wanted to clarify a few things about what this segment of the show is, or more accurately, what it isn't. Modernist Monastery is typically a show where I try to inspire you to do something I think might help make your life more healthy and more meaningful. But the Visions of the Past segment is not necessarily like that. Visions of the Past is purely historical, though of course I'm going to try and make it interesting and relevant. The purpose of this segment is to showcase individuals or organizations that have had an influence on us or the traditions of the world or which played an important part in the development of some of the ideas we cover on the main show. It is not to say that I agree with or support the actions or viewpoints of the person or group in question. These programs will also tend to go a little longer, too, but to reiterate, anything that ends up in the Visions of the Past segment is not necessarily something I personally agree with, but someone I think is worth knowing about. And today's subject is one of those. He's interesting, he's controversial, even today in some circles. Most interestingly, if you're religious, or even if you aren't, you might end up agreeing with one of his most important contributions to theology and philosophy, which for someone born almost 20 centuries ago is worth looking into. So now, on with the show. Alexandria, a city which forever lives in Western memory. Named and founded by the legendary Alexander the Great, and home to the most famous library in the world. A library which, in one of the great historical tragedies, burned to the ground half a century before the birth of Christ. But just under two centuries after his death, a man would be born in Alexandria who would shape and reshape the religion of Christianity itself. A man who must be held among the greatest and earliest Christian theologians and apologists. Someone whose novel approach to the Bible and its stories would open whole new vistas of thought to the Christian world. A vista on which many of today's Christian theologians, and especially apologists, now sit. Though whether they realize it is another question. Curiously, despite being almost 2,000 years old, this man proffered a kind of religious interpretation that many people today may find themselves shocked to agree with. Radical to some, illuminating to many, we will be relating the story and ideas of a man named Origen. Origen of Alexandria. I'm Dean Delp. Welcome to Modernist Monastery and Episode 1 of Visions of the Past. Origin of Alexandria, also known as Origin Adamantius, meaning adamant, unbreakable, or unalterable, was born around 185 AD in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. 
Everything we know, or think we know, about Origen's life we get secondhand from accounts written by someone else. While it can be frustrating to try and parse the fact from the fiction, we should be pleased to have anything about him at all. The account we do have comes from a biography written by the Christian historian Eusebius, someone extremely noteworthy in his own right. Origen was a childhood hero to Eusebius, and he writes him that way, living the perfect life of a literal saint and portraying him as the ultimate Christian scholar. Still ignoring the very obvious sections of hyperbole, one can piece together a decently cogent story of Origen's life. Origen's ideas, on the other hand, we have extremely credible sources for. By the time he died, Origen had written something like 2,000 unique texts, some of which we still have today. And it was the content of those many texts and treatises that gained him status as one of the great geniuses of Christianity, and makes him the subject of our episode today. According to Eusebius, Origen was ethnically Greek, and an openly practicing Christian, something very dangerous to do in 185 AD. Origen was taught Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine by his father, who was a professor of classic literature, and is said to have made Origen memorize daily passages of scripture. Later in life, Origen was known to quote whole chapters from memory. He was a fast learner and a deep thinker. By the time he was a teenager, he was asking questions about the scriptures that his father did not have the skill or knowledge to answer. At the age of 17, an order came from the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus that any openly practicing Christian in Alexandria was to be executed. Origen's father was thrown into prison, and Origen would have turned himself into the authorities, grimly determined to attain religious martyrdom, but for his mother, who hid all of his clothes, and Origen refused to leave the house naked. His father was beheaded, and his family's property confiscated, leaving Origen the head of the family and the oldest of nine siblings. In an effort to pay for his family, but also pursue his own interests as a scholar, he joined the Catechetical School of Alexandria one year later, a school supposedly founded by St. Mark himself, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. While there, he was quickly given a teaching position and adopted an ascetic life, characterized by fasting, abstinence from sex and alcohol, wearing no shoes, and owning only one robe. From there, Origen traveled to many different schools throughout Alexandria, including the Platonic Academy there. However, a strange point that is hardly relevant to us, but which is such a large part of his story that it can't help but be discussed, are the centuries-long rumors, which began during his own life, that Origen had allegedly castrated himself. It really isn't worth it to spend much time here other than to say that it was something which obviously affected his reputation, and is still an undecided topic among historians and theologians. Whether he did or did not castrate himself is ultimately unknown, but there are certainly reasons he might have done it, and also many reasons why others would seek to accuse him of it. During this same period, Origen began to write his first full book, entitled On the First Principles, a towering and systematic book that, once published many years later, would serve as a foundational text for Christian theology for hundreds of years. He would also spend time in Rome and be influenced by the philosophers there, Christian, Platonic, and Aristotelian. 
He was often called for by the leaders of specific groups or communities as an expositor of the Christian faith, and was requested by governors, princesses, and non-Christian philosophers to hear Christianity explained by its most famous intellectual. At any rate, castrated or not, Origen began stepping on the toes of certain authorities beginning in his early 20s. Origen began to view and proclaim himself as a Christian philosopher, despite not being official clergy or officially ordained. His popularity grew, and this became problematic, as the Bishop of Alexandria, Demetrius, was very intent on retaining absolute theological authority in the hierarchy of the Church. Origen's independence, while still claiming genuine authority to teach, was irksome. But for the moment, Origen was popular enough with the other bishops and deacons to evade Demetrius's control. Origen did try for a while to secure Demetrius's favor and asked many, many times to be ordained a priest, all of which Demetrius flatly refused. And when it was obvious that he would not bend, Origen just continued to write, now extending his work into areas of what he called theological speculation. Since he wasn't a priest, he wasn't preaching. He was just a private lay believer who happened to write very eloquently and speak very publicly about his personal theories on parts of the faith which were theologically mysterious. In desperation to get him out of the city, Demetrius sent Origen out of Alexandria on a religious mission to Athens. But along the way, Origen stopped in nearby Caesarea and was happily ordained as a priest there by the local clergy outraging Demetrius, who issued a formal condemnation of Origen. But this only caused further blowback, and the bishops in Caesarea gave Origen full residence and put him in one of the chiefest teaching positions. Demetrius, back in Alexandria, launched a preposterously large-scale series of formal complaints against those bishops and against Origen with the ecclesiarchs in Rome. It was here that Demetrius accused Origen of castrating himself, something that under church law would prevent him from being a priest, and was a death penalty offense under Roman law. But very soon thereafter, Demetrius died, and most of the trouble went with him, but not all. After Demetrius died, Origen would reach the peak of his career and notoriety, writing many books, hundreds of essays, and being widely recognized by clergy all across the Mediterranean as the supreme intellectual of the day. He was also extremely well-regarded by non-Christians, with whom he was often very successful. He was, in short, a celebrity of the highest caliber and degree. But, while he may have escaped the punishments of Rome in his youth, he would not escape them in his old age. The emperor Decius blamed the outbreak of a plague in 250 AD on the presence of Christians who did not worship him as divine. Origen, who the emperor obviously knew about, was thrown into prison, much like his father, but his captors were given express instructions not to kill him until he had renounced Christianity. For two bloody, bitter years, Origen was held prisoner and daily was tortured in literally medieval fashion. But Origen never caved and never renounced his faith. When Decius died in battle, Origen was set free, but hardly lived more than a year afterward, dying from the effects of his injuries at the age of 69. 
After his death, Origen's teachings would go on to gain greater and greater standing in the church, practically being the only name in Orthodox Christianity for 200 years. He was, during that time, regarded much as Eusebius saw him, the ultimate Christian scholar. However, his teachings were very detailed, highly nuanced, and often complex, easily misinterpretable, easily twisted, and easily overemphasized. There were not one, but two originist crises, as they were called. They are, as most internal theological conflicts are, immensely esoteric, deeply complicated, and fought with the most bitter vitriol. Both of the originist crises came about from high-ranking clergy and their disciples having major disagreements over the validity of Origen's work, especially the speculative parts with some calling him a heretic that had been influenced by false pagan philosophy, thus corrupting the doctrine, and others defending him as a saint, a genius, divinely inspired, and someone whose understanding exceeded theirs. Calling them crises was not an exaggeration. People literally died over this. In the end, after several hundred years and more than a few smaller crises, too, he would be anathematized and condemned by clergy more powerful than his defenders. Though whether he himself genuinely thought the things he would sometimes be made a heretic over is hard to say without asking the man himself, since many of his original manuscripts are lost to time. But even after being condemned and anathematized, he remained widely popular, sometimes secretly, sometimes openly, with thousands of Christian philosophers and priests forever afterwards, even today, where he is still regarded with great renown, even by those who disagree with his writing. So, while it's easy for us to understand the celebrity appeal of great genius, great charisma, great oratory, what was it Origen actually taught that made him so famous, so revolutionary, and still championed or denounced even now? I won't speak of the endlessly esoteric and obscure ocean of minute or even major doctrinal points he taught on. Instead, I will focus on his most major and long-lasting contribution, the thing that still brings in adherence to his views today, even among non-religious people. Origen of Alexandria is, for all intents and purposes, the founder of a school of thought and, most importantly, approach to both the Bible and therefore Christianity called exegesis. For spelling purposes, it is E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, -E -E and comes from the Greek word which means to lead out. Exegesis is essentially a kind of high literary textual lens that is used to interpret a given text, story, or passage. And while Origen certainly didn't invent literary criticism, he did take a certain approach to the Bible that would mark him as very unique indeed. Rather than take a primarily literal or historical approach to the scriptures, Origen took a predominantly moral, even allegorical, interpretation. As an example, take the story of Exodus, Moses freeing the Israelites from Egypt and parting the Red Sea. Rather than read it as a historical summary of events where the people will be taken as eyewitnesses of the miracles described, thus justifying the existence of the Hebrew God and a demonstration of his righteous power, Origen would look at what the story means rather than if it actually happened. In the New Testament, Jesus often taught in parables, stories that demonstrated an outward lesson 
but also an inner spiritual one. For Origen, Jesus didn't just teach in parables, the scriptures themselves were parabolic. Moses, Noah, Adam and Eve, and most other stories could be taken by Origen as allegories with symbolic meanings. Think of it this way. Take the story of the boy who cried wolf, which I am assuming you are familiar with. Ask yourself, is the story of the boy who cried wolf a true story? Well, it depends on what you mean. If you are asking whether or not the exact story of the boy who cried wolf factually happened, then no, it isn't a true story, though doubtless plenty of poor shepherd boys have been eaten by wolves. But on the other hand, the lesson or moral that the story teaches is certainly true. If you consistently lie to the people around you, then in your hour of true need, no one will help you. That isn't just true, but it's true for everyone in all ages of the world, and describes real life and real people with unending accuracy. We have surely known a boy who cried wolf, or even been one. So, in that sense, the boy who cried wolf is an undeniably true story, even though it didn't happen. To dismiss the lesson of the story as false or irrelevant because it didn't historically occur is to completely miss the point. No one dismisses or denounces the great lessons taught in powerful fiction from Shakespeare to Milton or Dostoevsky to Tolkien, and even more contemporary stories. If the story literally happened, the lesson is true. And if the story didn't literally happen, the lesson is still true. The question becomes, which kind of truth is more important to be true in a story? That it happened, or what it represents and teaches? The answer is obvious for court testimonies, or for stories like The Boy Who Cried Wolf. But what about the Bible? You can now likely see where this could get tangled and bitter very quickly. For Origen, the answer was, at least in the vast majority of cases, that the metaphorical or symbolic truth was of greater importance. The Bible itself didn't need to have literally happened for David and Goliath to be resoundingly true, and true in a way that was eternal and far more relevant to mankind than if a small boy actually killed a tall man with a rock. Origen took to expounding the whole of the Bible in this fashion, drawing grand and sweeping allegories, symbolic and practical, to explain the scriptures like Jesus did with parables. This was, as you can probably imagine, immensely popular, especially since it works whether you believe the stories happened or not. If you don't, then you can take it as a boy who cried wolf, and if you do, then all it does is strengthen your love and admiration and faith in the story at hand. These moral meanings were also very easy to apply into one's own life, and easily packaged religious principles, which could be very abstract, for popular use. The problem for Origen, and for any kind of exegesis or spiritualizing of the scriptures in any tradition, is where to draw the boundary line. Origen himself wasn't even sure all the time, and those boundaries quickly become of extreme importance. Is there anything that for a religion in question must have literally happened to still be true? Does God the Father literally exist, or is he a metaphor? Once, Origen was asked about the crucifixion of Christ and his virgin birth, doctrines obviously essential to Christianity, and questioned about whether or not they were real. 
Was Jesus born of a virgin? Was he crucified? And perhaps most importantly, did he literally come back from the dead? Origen's response was, of course, to give the profound allegorical and symbolic truths associated with those stories. But when hard-pressed, admitted he wasn't sure how much of those Christological events were historical. Now you can see where he would come into the blacklists of plenty of zealous and faithful believers. Even if Origen taught real truths about the biblical stories, if he didn't believe the most fundamental doctrines of the faith even happened, was he a Christian at all? Indeed, if there is nothing divine and miraculous literally happening, and everything is allegorical or symbolic, then why not take the same approach with the Norse gods, or the Egyptian ones, or the Chinese myths? And if taken, why should Christianity be better or more true than those traditions? And if so, then why should anyone convert? And if we do completely take this approach, deny all divinity, then must the believer admit that all religion is myth? Again, you can see where, for any typically religious person, Origen's work might become just as destructive as constructive. But to be fair to Origen, he is lost to time, and his answers on these questions largely are too. Perhaps Origen did believe the events of the life of Christ were literally divine and literally happened, it is very clear, for example, that he did believe God to be a real power and not purely allegorical. But at any rate, what could be seen, ironically, as a lack of faith, despite his two years of torture and refusal to renounce, made him a target for many people, and easily labeled a false teacher, even a blasphemer, attempting to corrupt and pervert the pure doctrines of the faith. Today, though, in a highly scientific era, one where literal factual truth is exceedingly prized, the ideas Origen preached and the approach he took to the Bible is popular today. This popularity exists among religious and non-religious people for all the same reasons it was popular anciently. If you don't have faith in the historicity of the miracles and stories, then a previously worthless book and the pointless traditions and teachers around it suddenly becomes a nearly unending treasure trove of wisdom on how to live a moral and positive life. It also becomes an opportunity to participate in a deeply developed intellectual culture and gain a new appreciation for hundreds of stories and characters you might not have cared about otherwise. The Old Testament alone contains hundreds of fascinating tales. And of course, this exegesis approach doesn't have to be just for Christianity. It will be just as functional in any other faith tradition. If you like the Norse myths or the Greek ones, then have fun. And on the other hand, if you are a person of faith, or perhaps I should say literal faith, then taking this kind of approach in addition to what you already have could strengthen your faith and allow you to gain even more from stories you already hold dear. In the end, regardless of our beliefs in a faith system, or lack of any, whenever we find something like the ideas of origin, it reminds us that we should never be surprised at how modern an ancient idea might sound. But rather, we should marvel at how anciently we all still think. I'm Dean Delp, and this has been Origin of Alexandria on the Modernist Monastery.